Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Money. It's funny. It's kind of like honey. If you eat a lot of it, it'll hurt your tummy. I would like to mention that a couple of days ago, Senator Obama was out in Ohio and he had an encounter with a guy who's a plumber. Get ready to buy a company that yeah. uh, makes 200, about $250,000, $270,000, $80,000 a year. Right. Your new tax plan is going to tax me more, isn't it? When former Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill said all politics are local, he had no idea just how local they could get. Sometimes it can just take one person to radically steer the big national political discussions. In this campaign, it was the voice you just heard, Joe the Plumber, who we all probably know by now is actually Samuel and not really a licensed plumber. When we could all talk about larger issues during campaigns, it seems we tend to focus on specific groups in tiny parts of the country. 36 voters in Osceola County, Florida, or 42 in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, or Mr. and Mrs. Smith Guzman in Elko, Nevada. Campaigns have to reach out to these groups in very specific, personal ways, airing TV ads, making phone calls, and even sending text messages. And this campaign has been all about small-town mayors and community organizers and what's going down in Wasilla in the south side of Chicago. So on today's show, only a few days away from a very big, very momentous election, we'll be discussing not politics themselves, but more local politics, more personal politics, more tiny, microscopic politics. We'll be talking smallitics. I'm Dan Hirsch, and this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Stay with us. From KZSU in Stanford, California, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Each week, we bring you an hour of stories that explores a single question theme. Stories of every kind, documentaries, fiction, memoir, academic sleuthing, even ballads. All written and produced by Stanford students, fellows, and faculties. For the first episode of our second season, it's stories of the extremely local. What happens when politicians get up close and personal? When local issues or leaders step onto the national stage in a big way? And when the very personal questions of who we love and how we live become political debate for a gigantic audience? So on the ballot this week, we have five polemical propositions. Prop 1, Mississippi on my mind. Yours truly, Dan Hirsch, ventures to Mississippi and deep into the fried heart of a county fair and its local politics. Prop 2, Yukon home. Claire Bennett takes us to her home state of Alaska and tells the true tale of their homegrown hockey mom. Prop 3, capturing the Freedmen's vote. Charlie Mintz documents a group of students in an especially targeted campaign effort calling grandparents in Florida. Prop 4, perfect record. Micah Craddy tells us of his attempts to seize political power in a small dystopian state run entirely by teenage boys. And Prop 5, those women. Lee Constantino tells the story of two women whose same-sex marriage in California causes a statewide controversy in Montana. And throughout the show, you'll hear music by Nimbleweed, the little bluegrass band will, that could will tell us, yes, we can, too. It's a state-hopping, ballot-busting, banjo-strumming look at Smolitics. Stick around. Prop 1, Mississippi on my mind. Sometimes, small events in forgotten parts of the country can have a huge impact on national politics. 
This summer, I found myself at such a place. Strangely, it was a county fair in Mississippi. Well, I thought I would enjoy a day of carnival rides and pig wrestling. Instead, I got a whole heaping portion of political speech making and new thoughts about local and national culture, front porches, and all things fried. So it's, it's, if you love politics, and the Shelby County Fair is certainly the place to be. It's a little bit sticky and steamy in the summertime, but that's Mississippi. you gotta, you got to deal with that. Mississippi's Neshoba County Fair is one of the most important political events in the country, and you've probably never heard of it. It was a key spot for both the Nixon and Reagan presidential campaigns. And this year, the Neshoba County Fair was the site of the first meeting between competing candidates for a hugely important U.S. Senate race. So the fair is big politics, but with a definite local Southern style. It's known throughout the state as Mississippi's Giant House Party. For one week every July, Mississippians flock to Neshoba County to reunite at their temporary community of 600 cabins. These little clapboard structures are passed down from generation to generation. The rows of cabins are divided into neighborhoods with hand-painted street signs reading their quaint names, Happy Hollow and Sunset Strip. Wooden and narrow, these cabins are little more than well-worn shacks, but they are also clearly maintained. Christmas lights and colorful banners twist around the verandas and columns. And people sit on their front porches, prepare home-cooked meals, and invite their neighbors to share some sweet tea and barbecue, and most likely, reminisce about the good old times, and, as it turns out, talk politics. When I walked through Sunset Strip this July, in the humidity of midday and the thick atmosphere of neighborliness, I felt like I had stumbled into some lost time, or the platonic ideal of small-town living. But woozy from the southern food and the heat, I felt unnerved by Mississippi's world-famous house party and how the events of this one hot day could affect the way Congress will vote for the next four years. At the fair, there are the agricultural competitions, greasy spoons, and old carnival rides. But political speeches are the main event of the day. Since 1896, when Mississippi Governor Anselm Joseph spoke at the fair, politicians from every level of Mississippi government have been coming to Neshoba County to give speeches to the often rowdy crowd. This was where Ronald Reagan began his presidential campaign in 1980. It is a crucial stop for any politician in Mississippi. I found myself at this unique place this summer because I was an intern at a nonprofit organization in Jackson. The Neshoba County Fair is so important in local culture and politics that my fellow interns, our boss and I, actually got the day off work to travel to this rural region of Mississippi. When we passed through the entrance gate to the fair, one of my coworkers mentioned that Neshoba County is also the site of the infamous 1964 murders of three civil rights workers, James Cheney, Michael Schwerner, and Andrew Goodman. And so when I looked up at the big welcome banners, I wondered to myself, what kind of place exactly are we being welcomed into? And they were a few years ago. Do you have more confidence in Washington today? At 10 a.m. that morning, I could already smell the fried chicken and cow manure. I could hear the grinding gears of the rusty Ferris wheel. And I saw before me the squat metropolis of tiny cabins with their kitschy names and colorful front porches. 
I'm an unabashed liberal from Massachusetts. I go to school in California. This was not the organic vegetarian folk music pottery wheel spinning peace rally type fare I was accustomed to. Here they serve deep fried Oreos and meat on a stick. So, as I walked towards Founders Square and the main pavilion where the day was soon beginning, I could only imagine what kind of down-home Mississippi political speech-making I was about to hear. And this was an especially important year to come to the Neshoba County Fair. Working folks like us lose out because insiders A heated and surprisingly competitive race for U.S. Senate was just gearing up. That previous December, Mississippi Republican Senator Trent Lott had resigned, creating a new seat opening and the unlikely opportunity for the Democratic Party to send a progressive politician from Mississippi to the Senate for the first time in decades. Prior to Trent Lott, Senator John C. Stennis, a known segregationist, had represented Mississippi in the U.S. Senate for almost 42 years. On the ticket this year is former Governor Ronnie Musgrove for the Democrats and incumbent Roger Wicker for the Republicans. While I stood in the shade beside the main pavilion and waited for the speeches to get underway, I talked with one of the local reporters covering the fair. His name is the Mississippi's Giant House Party, and certainly for anybody who's running for public office in Mississippi, this is the place where they have to make a stop. This is Ross Adams, a reporter for Channel 12 News in Jackson. Is that we're, we're taking a look at the campaigns because for some reason this is going to be a competitive race between Senator Wicker and Governor Musgrove. This is a traditionally Republican state, but because of the president's uh, very negative approval ratings and the situation in the in the country and around the world, the Democrats have a chance for the first time in decades to possibly pick up a United States Senate seat in Mississippi. Trying to seize a rare opportunity, the Democratic National Committee has actually invested over $3 million in Musgrove's campaign. If he wins, it would not only be the first time in 42 years that Mississippi has elected a Democrat for Senate, it would also put the Democrats one seat closer to a 60-seat supermajority enough to withstand any filibuster. But the odds of a Democrat taking this specific Senate seat are slim. Or, according to Ross for Channel 12 News, and that could be a political earthquake, to say the least. The pavilion was packed with over 200 people of all ages holding signs for the various candidates. They sat in rows of wooden benches, some held homemade signs over their heads. Others fanned themselves off with church fans imprinted with all the various candidates' names. The morning of speeches started off with addresses from the state auditor, a state prosecutor, and a few state senators. Again and again, the speakers proclaimed that Washington is out of touch with the lives of everyday Americans. Then the MC announced former Governor Ronnie Musgrove's name, and the packed pavilion broke out into simultaneous hissing and cheers, each side waving the church fans and placards of their candidate of choice. <laughs> Scanning the crowd, it looked like Wicker supporters outnumbered Musgrove's three to two. This isn't a county with a reputation for voting for Democrats. Even still, Musgrove is far from your average Democrat. 
He said lots of things I personally disagree with. I probably have a different take on the Second Amendment and Roe v. Wade. But I found his demeanor likable and could see how he might be a positive leader for Mississippi. Roger Wicker followed immediately after Musgrove, and his supporters went nuts. Wicker missed no opportunity to directly attack Musgrove. Though one is more liberal and the other markedly more conservative, both men appealed to the crowd's sense of local pride and history and their utter distaste with the national government. Mississippi is a special place. There aren't any more decent, kind, hardworking, patriotic people in America. Hurricane Katrina After the speeches, all the local reporters swarmed in the main square outside the speech pavilion to get interviews with Wicker and Musgrove. The two men stood at opposite sides of the square, each with a cadre of supporters who held signs around the candidates' heads like red, white, and blue halos. My boss is actually friends with Musgrove. It seems like everybody knows everybody in Mississippi. So I got the chance to interview the would-be senator. As I approached the man that could critically alter the balance of the Senate, I felt sweaty and gross and hoped he wouldn't notice the sweat stains on my shirt. And uh, tell me in five seconds why Mississippi should vote for you. Well, because Washington spending is out of control, it's hurt our economy, it's pork barrel politics, it's special interests who are running the show, and too much partisan politics. If people elect Ronnie Musgrove for the United States Senate, I'll put Mississippians first and make sure that we help and take care of Mississippians before all of those other things. As the bustling mass of journalists and supporters engulfed Musgrove, it occurred to me that I just participated in the pure essence of the political process. Aren't politics all about shaking hands and smiling, making nice with the reporters, and scorching in the midday heat of a county fair? In a weird way, being at the fair, this haven for small-town, southern conservative politics, made me feel completely self-conscious. But also, oddly comfortable and charmed. In the afternoon, I ate lunch with some friends of my boss at their family cabin. We ate smoked ham and bean salad, and drank all the sweet tea we could stomach. I walked through the fairgrounds and bought myself a deep-fried Oreo. It was delicious. No wonder Mississippi is statistically the fattest state in the Union. I saw prize-winning heifers and giant watermelons, and I meandered through the narrow corridors of the fair's neighborhoods, Greenleaf Hollow and Magnolia Corner. Strangers waved and smiled at me from the rocking chairs of their cabin's front porches. And uh, how long have you been coming to the Neshoba County Fair? Oh, about 55, 60, about 60 years probably. What do you, why do you like coming to the fair? What's special about it? Well, just to visit with the people mostly. Primarily, I used to come from... This wasn't necessarily my crowd or my way of thinking about the world. To me, all the regionalism and disdain for Washington in the speeches seemed like obvious political moves and appeals to narrow-minded thinking. 
During the speeches of the morning, I wondered if anyone noticed when I didn't cheer loudly for cutting taxes, or when I didn't boo violently when Barack Obama's name was mentioned. But as I walked through the rows of cabins waving their family-made banners, with their front steps painted in the colors of Mardi Gras, I thought differently. I could see why this was a way of life people could love and want to protect. Well, most of them that are friends and are, are old schoolmates and so forth that have moved from here and, and come back for the fair that we see only annually at the fair. The fair is a place to reunite and recollect. It's a place defined by a deep sense of community. It would be nice to live somewhere like this, small and affectionate and shut off from the rest of the world. But when I walked over to the afternoon's main event of harness racing at the horse track, I remembered why part of me had been uneasy walking through the chummy, old-timey neighborhood of cabins. I realized the darker side of romanticizing this small community with its golden age sensibilities. Uh, is it a big event? Do a lot of people come and watch the horse? Yeah, uh, my partner's out there now with Unkissed Woman. <laughs> this is Howard Jackson, one of the horse trainers that coach the horses of the fair's harness races. He is one of many that travel from other states every year to train and coach the horses of the fair. None of them own a family cabin here. And they were, of course, some of the only black people I had seen all day. Here, the troubling legacy of Mississippi's good old days became all too apparent. The fair's community of cabin owners and politicians were all white. Its horse trainers and jockeys, all black. Loaded with the heavy historical baggage of Jim Crow and segregation, those port scenes with their iced tea and barbecue didn't seem so quaint. As I sat in the stadium and listened to the bluegrass band and watched the harness racers that passed by, I thought more and more about the relationship of local culture and national government, and what we forget when we glorify a past age. I thought of former Mississippi Governor Ross Barnett. In 1962, he actively opposed James Meredith's attempts to become the first black man to enroll in the University of Mississippi. I thought of Governor George Wallace in Alabama, in Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, and the battle over school integration. I thought of all the times in our nation's long, tortured history of civil rights in which the federal government had to struggle against local politicians, men who were bent on preventing reform to come to their cherished yet outdated way of life, the very cultures like the one represented every summer at the Neshoba County Fair. Obviously, neither Ronnie Musgrove or Roger Wicker or George Wallace or Ross Barnett. Times have changed, but by trashing the national government and playing up all the folksy local character stuff, don't you run the risk of causing people to hate those who are different, who are outsiders? Washington politicians can be out of touch or distant from our everyday lives, but in the late afternoon sun of the fair, as I sipped my last cup of sweet tea for the day and watched another round of harness racers cross the finish line, I understood that those Washington politicians are there for a good reason. But so is the Neshoba County Fair. Full 
As of today, Roger Wicker leads Ronnie Musgrove in the polls by two points. But an increase in African-American voter participation could swing the election in Musgrove's favor. Which brings us to Prop 2. Yukon Home. Storytelling producer Claire Bennett takes us back to her small hometown of Nikiski, Alaska, one day after its governor rose to national prominence. She discovers the complex nature of Alaska's identity, its isolation, and its ice-capped mountains. As I sat in a window seat 40,000 feet above Alaska, I remember the chilling stanzas of Robert Service that describe the outstanding view. There's a land where the mountains are nameless, and the rivers all run God knows where. There are lives that are erring and aimless, and deaths that just hang by a hair. Leaning up against the four-inch plastic of the window, I could see nothing but mountains and rivers stretching on for miles. The airplane seat was especially dull and gray, and I was nauseous, but I was happy to be closer to my home in Alaska. It was the landscape outside my window that had seemed so distant and inconsequential to the rest of the U.S. right up until the day before. Only 24 hours earlier, John McCain had chosen Sarah Palin as his vice presidential running mate, and I was near the end of a 10-hour trip to return to my home in Alaska. While journalists were scrambling to find out how to pronounce her name, and voters were learning that Alaska is a very big red state, my father was picking me up at Ted Stevens Anchorage International Airport. Late summer was usually temperate, but the rain in Alaska had been unbearable since May. Even the peppy meteorologist on Channel 2 had prefaced her report by saying, there's nothing to look forward to in the next week. I had no idea how important those two weeks with nothing to look forward to would become. After exchanging hugs and a few words about the uncomfortable flight, my father and I began the long drive home. It would last for three hours and follow the coast of the silty gray cook inlet, bordered by endless spruce forests and mountains still capped with snow. Just after we left the busy airport, my father made a comment that I found surprising. You have to be careful when talking about her, he said, choosing his own words about Palin carefully. Around here, people think this is the best thing that has ever happened. This first struck me as entirely unlikely. At home, political discussions are not commonplace. Nikiski, like many small towns in Alaska, has a character much like the honest ranch towns of Texas and a landscape with more lakes than Minnesota. In a place like this, politics tend to be thought of as corrupt and disconnected. Young people especially couldn't care less about who does or doesn't live in the governor's mansion. It is 200 miles and a three-hour drive that separates us from the nearest metropolis of Anchorage. In high school, 
only about five of my classmates had even bothered to vote during the general election for governor when Palin had first won. As it turned out, Sarah Palin's victory in that election would affect the state in ways that we had never imagined. For the weeks I was home in September, I attended Saturday afternoon football games at my brother's high school. The school is only two minutes down the road from the rusting stacks of a natural gas refinery and the strip mall containing a post office, a bar, and the Chevron gas station. At the football game, the typically loud spectators were more subdued in the colder weather that had followed with shortened hours of sunlight and daily rain. Seated in front of me, a teacher from the high school was having a lively conversation concerning the governor. That's her thing, you know. She can talk, he said, expressing a conviction common among Alaskans. She knows where she comes from, and she's made the pipeline work. She knows exactly what she's about. It often seemed that the governor, like many Alaskans, believes that her life has been more typical than other politicians, and yet more rugged. Alaskans are self-selective. They're here because they made a choice to be here. People like Palin actively choose the remote lifestyle of an Alaskan, and they don't tend to relate well to the outside. The easiest way to see evidence of rural Alaska's political isolation is to attend Nikiski High School's mock presidential convention. The gym's bleachers are often filled with students during girls' basketball games, but this time there aren't any black and silver jerseys, and the scoreboard is dark. The convention's purpose is to involve students in government and to demonstrate the democratic process with which we should all be enamored. Until mock convention, most students never see any government in their lives other than W-2 forms and the Selective Service Registration. As a sophomore in high school, I attended a convention that turned out to be particularly formative of my own political views. During a discussion of gay marriage, a girl was booed from the stage as she explained her acceptance of her gay brother. Later in my days at Nikiski High, I'd see Christianity pushed upon a Muslim exchange student, and my gay friend dropped out of school to move to a more tolerant suburb. Alaska's small towns, like the ones Palin and I call home, are communities that seem to live in a kind of blissful ignorance of diverse lifestyles. For a long time, Alaska has been distanced from the lower 48 in both miles and mindset. Palin's effect on Alaska has been more reflexive than revolutionary. Since the nomination finally hit home, Alaska has been made to sit in front of the mirror and see what the rest of the country thinks of its culture, contrary to what the media makes of Palin. She is actually Alaska's own brand of feminist. She is regarded as the vision of an ideal Alaskan woman, who is considered more real when she matches or outperforms a man. The popular girls in high school are those who break free throw records, ride snow machines, drive beat up trucks, and still wear a pink gown on homecoming night. As I've come to recognize my own cultural conditioning, I've suddenly been able to empathize with Palin's situation. She's right when she says that she's a typical middle-class woman, but Alaskans are beginning to think that this might not be what they were looking for. It's like her friends say, my mother expressed to me, as we stood in the kitchen watching the news. I'm not sure if I really want the girl next door to be president. As the governor's approval ratings drop in Alaska, and as the fairy tale atmosphere of the nomination fades, I'm becoming more and more conscious of Alaska's reasons for isolating itself. 
The life that I consider normal, the life that Palin considers normal, is seeming less and less relatable as Alaskan politics are brought onto the national stage. Just like the one to Alaska, the flight to San Jose left me sore and tired. Once back on campus, it seemed like those three weeks had never even happened. At Stanford, I found that many people were baffled by McCain's choice of running mate. Anyone who knew me as an Alaskan asked my opinion of Sarah Palin, and I replied with the judgments and the extrapolations on her character that I'd collected over the last two years. How can anyone like her? One friend asked me over dinner a few weeks ago. Though I don't usually agree with Palin, we come from the same place, and I grew up in the culture that she symbolizes. Palin herself is disconnected. She is a product of the Alaskan culture, which has been so determined in its isolation ever since the first homesteaders blazed trails into the north. The nameless mountains, the endless rivers, these are things that she's praised for so long. What I wonder most is, why did she agree to give that all up? There are hardships that nobody reckons. There are valleys unpeopled and still. There's a land, oh it beckons, and beckons. And I want to go back, and I will. That piece was produced by Claire Bennett and myself. Claire is a junior at Stanford and hails, of course, from Alaska. Wish our VP was a hockey mom straight from Alaska. Prop 3, Capturing the Freedmen's Vote. If Barack Obama doesn't win on November 4th, comedian Sarah Silverman is blaming the Jewish voters in Florida. Or at least that's what she says when she's encouraged young Jewish Obama supporters to make campaign calls to elderly Jewish voters in swing states. <sighs> it always seems to come down to Florida. Charlie Mintz documented a group of Jewish students at Stanford as they picked up their phones, called their bubbies, and often got more than they bargained for. I'm looking for either Stanley or Judith Stein. Hi. Hi. Hi, my name is Mark Carroll. Hi, is this Mrs. Rothman? Hi, Mr. Adler. My name is Allison Fink, and I'm a volunteer for the Barack Obama campaign and a student at Stanford University. I was wondering whether you're considering supporting Senator Obama in November's election. Excellent. That's great to hear. So what we're going to do is we actually have a phone book um, that my friend procured from his great aunt of a Jewish retirement community in Florida. Oh my god, you get the wipes. Archer? That sound Jewish to you? Rosenthal. Everyone seems to be voting for Barack Obama. <laughs> We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. Hi, my name is Allison Fink, and I'm a volunteer for the Barack Obama campaign and a student at Stanford University. Ooh, um, I understand, uh, but is, is there any issue that's um, particularly bothering you about Obama that we could, that I could help you address, or? Hi, my name is Dan, and I'm a volunteer for the Barack Obama campaign, uh, and I'm currently at Stanford University. How are you doing today? Um, I was wondering if you've made up your mind about who you plan on voting for in November. Not yet. You ha you haven't decided. Um, is there an issue that's most important to you? Hi, my name is Allison Fink, and I'm a volunteer for the Barack Obama campaign and a student at Stanford University. And I was just wondering whether you were considering supporting Senator Obama in November's election. 
Hello? I think Obama, you know, will really, you know, demonstrate um, that. Uh, oh God, you're, you're making this hard for me. Uh, <laughs> I haven't even gotten to like. Launching your spiel. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, like, did I mean? I think a lot of people are making comparisons. You know that this is. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Have a good day. And I just just think about it. <laughs> Are you gone? Oh my god. <laughs> That's horrible. Oh, uh, MVP. MVP. Hi, I'm looking for either Lawrence or Gail Starr. Hi, my name is Allison Fink and I'm a volunteer for the Barack Obama campaign and a student at Stanford University. Um, and I was just calling to see um, whether you're considering supporting Senator Obama in November's election. <laughs> That's good. That's wonderful. Oh, that's that's so great to hear. Thanks for calling Shiloh and Bill. We will call you back. We promise we will. Hi, Aunt Shiloh. It's Andrew. Um, I just wanted to call and say thank you for helping me out. Um, I have some friends here, and um, we've been calling. We've been calling the people that you said, and everyone's been really nice, and um, we've had some good conversations. So I just wanted to thank you for helping me out and helping out with the campaign, and I hope you're well, and I'll see you in Phoenix. Love you. Bye. Senior producer Charlie Mintz created that piece, and in case you didn't recognize the voice of that one hopelessly unprepared Obama supporter, that was me. <sighs> this brings us to the next part of our show, Prop 4, Perfect Record. Every politician has to get their start somewhere. Winning or losing an election early in your career can make or break your political ambitions. Our next story is about one such political upstart. Former storytelling producer Micah Craddy tells the story of his career as a high school politician. It started in seventh grade. Election season had arrived at East Middle School, and I decided to take a shot at the levers of power. I wasn't popular enough to run for president, but my friends were popular enough that I had a fair shot at treasurer. Besides, what's the point of being known as the smart kid if you can't get the one geek job on student council? My election strategy was to give a funny speech over the PA system during the morning announcements, along with all of the other would-be politicians. I say funny because that was the plan for my speech, not what actually happened. Even though my entire speech was under a minute, I repressed most of it, except for these lines. Money. It's funny. It's kind of like honey. If you eat a lot of it, it'll hurt your tummy. Yeah, I know. I repressed the wrong part of the speech. My thinking was threefold. Make them laugh, make it rhyme, and say the word money. Hey, one for three ain't bad. Needless to say, I lost the election. I had an excuse, though. I was in seventh grade, and the election was won by an eighth grader. But I lost that excuse the following year, when I again ran for treasurer, and I was again beaten by a girl. But this one was a year younger than me. By now, I was getting desperate, so I found the one election I knew I couldn't lose. Again, it was for treasurer, so I had the nerd thing going for me. But this was for treasurer of the Bible Club. The Bible Club. How could I lose? 
I'd been in it for three years. I knew the most about the Bible, and I had an ace in the hole. My dad was a pastor. A pastor. How could they deny God's will? How could I lose? Chris Gutierrez. That's how. Again, I lost to someone a year younger than me. But hey, it was a guy this time, so that was a refreshing change of pace. After my past debacles, I didn't even bother with the speech this time. I just got up, cracked a joke, and assumed everyone would follow the party line. After all, I was obviously Jesus' candidate. But then Chris had to stand up with his little piece of notebook paper, all full of piety and humility, and tell everyone he wanted to serve God with his whole heart. After that, I didn't run for office for a while. Luckily, my latest loss coincided with the onset of my teenage disdain for student government. After all, they're just the lackeys of the administration, a pretty face on the corrupt, totalitarian regime imposed on us by those above the age of majority. Power to the little people. My self-imposed exile from politics ended the summer after my junior year of high school. Along with two other guys from my school, I was selected to attend California Boys State. Boys State is a program run by the American Legion, where about a thousand guys of the same age from all over the state converge on a college campus for a week of lectures in mock government. The basic premise is to, over the course of the week, form a state government, from city elections up to the governor's office. By doing this, we are supposed to be instilled with a sense of civic duty. Well, it was a nice idea. Let's see, there was the near race riot at the talent show, where one conference attendee had to be escorted off campus by the police for his own safety. There was the casino, opened by the kid who had his parents fax up documentation that he was Native American. And there was, of course, the constant fixation on the only thing more conspicuously absent than a sense of civic duty. Women. By the third day, some helpful student had labeled the girl in the Axe body spray advertisement in the cafeteria with a post-it note. Nadia quickly became the most popular person on campus. During one particularly rousing lecture on the necessity of sacrifice, a college co-ed happened to walk by. The ovation she received was louder than Kennedy in Berlin. Ich bin ein Woman. Then one morning, the counselor from my hall gathered us for our daily meeting. Gentlemen, I have an announcement, he said with a grave face. Last night, I got laid. On top of all the usual shenanigans were the political shenanigans. Since this was an imaginary society, it ran by imaginary rules. Death squads roamed the campus with pretend guns made from cardboard tubing. They would assassinate political rivals, and if the county coroner happened to be one of their allies, the dead were supposed to stay dead. I had to run for some office, so I tried to pick the easiest one, the state Supreme Court. There were seven slots on the court, so I could be the sixth loser and still get elected. In the past, I'd only been second or third loser at the worst, so I was pretty confident I could get a spot. But how would I get elected? What words would overcome the apathy of my hormonally imbalanced peers? Well, really, what words would just make them remember my name? I came up with a plan that coupled epic courage with audience participation. Together, a groundswell would sweep me to an appointment on the most prestigious fake court in the state. On the day we were to deliver speeches, all the candidates for Supreme Court sat in rows of folding chairs in front of the other students, who were reclining on the grass. 
When my time came, I strode to the podium, full of an overwhelming sense of terror. Please, oh please, God, I prayed, do not let this blow up in my face. I started into my speech, which was pretty standard. I tried to be engaging, and I repeated my name as much as was humanly possible. I, Micah Craddy, believe in freedom for all Micah Craddies, in the great land of Micah Craddy, patriotism, Micah Craddy, or something like that. But then at the end, I enacted my secret plan. I began to sing, without any music, I'm proud to be an American, to an audience of several hundred teenage boys. Phase one had begun. Now time for phase two, where my friends in the audience would stand up and join in, leading the entire audience to leap to their feet and join me in patriotic electoral harmony. Except they weren't standing up. No one was standing up. No one was even singing, except for me, of course. I was singing. This was not a dream, and I was definitely singing. Oh God, I prayed. Why me? I didn't want much. Just to be loved by the masses and have them prove their love with a ballot. I knew I was failing, and failing in the worst way. Publicly. But I kept singing. I finished up my song... I microcratted one more time, and then I parked myself in the metal folding chair of disaster. You probably don't need me to tell you what happened next, but I will. I lost. I lost badly. Forget top seven, I don't even think I cracked the top 17. But really, could you blame me? There were two guys running with the last name Wang, and one was a lot bigger. His slogan was, vote for the big, well you get the idea. Of course, he got elected, as did the smaller boy named Wang. How was I supposed to compete with that? My last name is Craddy, and yeah, you can mess with the letters to make other words, but none of them are flattering. Believe me, I know. I went to elementary school. But seriously, what was wrong with me? I had lost every single election I'd participated in, and three of them were for middle school treasurer, for goodness sakes. That's like the Children's Rec Soccer League of elections. Everyone's supposed to win. It wasn't that pathetic. Odds were I should win something sometime, if just by accident. But then I thought back to all the elections I'd ever participated in and found a common thread. That is, a common thread besides all the losing. I had never campaigned. Sure, I had given speeches, but I'd never made a single poster, kissed a single baby. I had never even asked my own friends to vote for me. I couldn't. It was embarrassing. I'm way more self-conscious than the average bear, and campaigning is the most narcissistic of all actions. That's not a combination that's conducive to victory. I could give a speech, because that was performance, on a stage, to an audience. But person to person? Asking someone to vote for me? What if they didn't want to? Would they tell me that? Would they lie to me? Neither option was appealing. I haven't participated in an election since then, and I don't plan on it in the future at least until I turn 35 and make my run for the White House. Maybe. I just can't do the necessary campaigning. Now, there is one last option. Maybe I just give horrible speeches. But really, I don't. Okay, I did in middle school, but not after that. Remember that singing debacle at Boys State? When I went to sit down afterwards, the guy next to me leaned over and said, You got huge balls, dude. I got that all over. You were the guy that sang? That took guts, man. It might not have caused them to vote for me, or even remember my name, Micah Craddy, 
but I did earn their respect, which really wasn't nearly as good, but I'll take it. Alumni producer Micah Craddy graduated in the class of 2008 and currently writes for Outside Magazine. Finally, the last story of our show, Prop 5, Those Women. Geography can go a long way in determining public opinion. What flies in one state may not in its neighbor. One California couple from Montana found this out when they decided to get married. What was shocking to many in their home state was that they were two women. Lee Constantino tells the story of Bridget Weirdy and her partner, Nikki. Yeah, it was sort of funny. At the time, we kept saying back and forth, are you sure you want to do this? Once we use the M word, everyone's going to freak out. It's going to get big. Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? And, but we, we actually both did. This is Bridget Weirdy, a graduate student in the English department at Stanford. And of course, the M word she's talking about is marriage. At the beginning, she was saying things like, marriage is a patriarchal, heteronormative institution designed to monopolize women's social and economic and sexual worth, and I don't, I'm not interested in that. And she was so convincing that she convinced me. Bridget and her partner, Nikki, were content with the life they shared together. They had met seven years ago while in college at the University of Montana. They met at a coffee shop in Missoula in their home state. Um, it was one of those very stereotypical undergrad sort of college meeting someone things. I sort of went up and started flirting shamelessly with her, but um, we got in a conversation about old movies of Katherine Hepburn, then just started spending time together and fell in love very quickly and have been together ever since. After three and a half years of being together, Bridget and Nikki consider themselves already married. Living together, pets together, paying the bills together, being with each other and only each other. They were content with their lives. They didn't need anyone else to tell them who they were or what their relationship was about. We saw the pictures of the first couple to get married in 2004, I think, by Gavin Newsom. Uh -huh. um, and I looked at that and thought, that's going to be us. Someday it will be legal, but we will be that sort of cute little old lady couple that people will look at and say, they've been together 50 years and now they can do this. I mean, I believed it would happen, but I did never, I never believed I would be this young. But for Bridget and Nikki, things changed in May of 2008 when the California Supreme Court began its deliberations on same-sex marriage. The day of the ruling, Bridget remained skeptical. Only four years earlier, Bridget had been a vocal activist against SI-96 which proposed a Montana constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage. After all her hard work against that measure, it had passed. And this time, she thought, wouldn't be any different. So when I heard the California Supreme Court was going to rule on this, I was intensely cynical. Um, I thought, okay, so we'll do this. They'll say no. And one of my colleagues was like, have you heard about the decision? And I told her, I don't want to hear about it. You know, I know that... that People are not going to sort of stand up for equality, and it, I, it just makes me sad. And she was like, no, uh, it, it went the other way. Um, and I checked my cell phone, and there was a call from Nikki, and the message was just, 
So I know you say you're kind of opposed to the whole marriage thing, but I just heard the news and I was wondering if you wanted to reconsider that. And I called her back and left her a message saying, if that's a marriage proposal, you're going to have to do better. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of same-sex marriage, and suddenly, for the first time in their lives, Bridget and Nikki's relationship could have the same legal standing as everyone else's. So they put all the old reservations and doubts aside and decided to go for it. They were going to get married, use the M-word, but at the time, they had no idea how their very personal decision would turn into a huge discussion for an entire state. I got this very odd phone call from my mother saying, so, my mother in, in Montana, saying, so, I don't want you to think that this is a prank call if a reporter calls you and wants to talk with you about you and Nikki. This man named Martin Kidston ran into, in passing, um, the director of the Montana Human Rights Network. He ran into her and said, so how about this California thing? And they were chatting about it. And he asked her in passing, do you know any couples who are going from Montana to California to get married? And um, her partner is in the same book group as my mother. So one thing led to another, and Martin Kidston called Bridget's mother. Bridget's mother called Bridget, and suddenly Bridget and Nikki in the midst of planning their wedding, had to decide if they wanted the state of Montana reading about their personal life. Uh, and it was funny. Nikki and I thought about it, and we talked about it. She said she didn't want her name in the paper until she could get permission from her family because she comes from a very small town in eastern Montana. Her grandmother actually doesn't know that she's a lesbian. She doesn't know that her... Uh, spinsterish best friend she's been hanging out with for seven years um, is in fact her partner. So, so this was anxiety-inducing that Nikki's Nikki would her name would be more public than it has ever been before. But Nikki's parents did give them permission, so Bridget and Nikki agreed and even sent Martin photos. And then we'd sent one of us hugging by the Golden Gate Bridge, because we thought, no, Montana couple in San Francisco getting married, they need this, this is iconic. They wanted their story to be told, and they didn't think it would be a big deal. We thought, you know, page six of the C-section, the kind of Montana life, you know, slow news day kind of thing. Um, and so the morning of the 19th, dawns and we'd been up decorating the night before and the phone rings and it's one of our very good friends from Montana screaming oh my god you're getting married and you're on the front page um, so we were not on page six of the Montana human interest section we were um, uh, front page above the fold big color photos so the first one was called uh, lifelong commitment um, and had this fantastic quote from Nikki in it about how marriage is not just a commitment to each other it's a commitment to community and family um, and, and she's very eloquent. This was on the morning of their wedding. Their wedding was a simple, intimate gathering of friends and family, many having traveled from Montana. We got married in a friend's backyard in Redwood City, and we had the reception at our house. And our neighbors moved their cars out of the parking places, and we washed off the driveway and turned it into this sort of lovely patio space with lots of flowers and lights and candles and tables everywhere, and my great-grandmother's tablecloths and that kind of thing. sort of holding out against patriarchal, heteronormative, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, was, I was very touched by the ceremony. I was the one who cried. Um, it was wonderful. 
Bridget and Nikki felt good about their front page exposure and had no idea what their marriage was about to cause thousands of miles away. And we had this sort of naive notion that, you know, say there's some depressed gay teenager who's in the closet in Montana and reads this cheery little story about, like, two women falling in love at college, getting together, being together seven years, getting married. Sure. Why not? This, this is good. This is activism. This is how stories, stories change lives. This is what we thought was going to happen. Um, we were very foolish. A week later, um, another article came out. So then the next article comes out, and it's by Martin again, and it's called um, Gay Marriage Brings Out Worst in Some Hellenins. And it's about his experience as the writer getting the flack. And it starts out sort of saying, you know, I don't know what it's like to have society judge me and keep rights to me on the basis of, you know, race, religion, ability, gender. And then he went through and started detailing some of the responses he'd been given. You know, he mentions some of them are positive, but talks about how a lot of them are talking, accusing him of uh, maybe being gay because he's telling the story. You know, someone called and said, I didn't go fight in Iraq, so this sort of thing could happen in my country. And he, and he lists all of these out and then says at the end, um, I'm sharing this with you because now in some way I can begin to understand what it might be like to be gay or lesbian in the U.S., um, to understand some fraction of the hatred then, and the fear that people will respond to them with it. Um, he says in the end, you know, I, I wasn't there when African Americans were kept from voting. I wasn't there when they were forced to the back of the bus. I wasn't there when women couldn't vote. Um, but I've seen the face of sort of the new bigotry. Um, it was, and and he, it was just, it was a beautiful article. Um, and I was, I was stunned by it. And that kicked off a firestorm of letters and online comments back and forth and back and forth and back and forth that lasted four or five weeks after our wedding um, every day. Some of the letters were surprisingly positive. Um, and then she ended with this line saying something like, um, you know, my husband and I have been together 47 years. We don't feel threatened by Nikki and Bridget. We don't feel threatened by anybody wanting to share their love. Congratulations to them. Others had an uglier tone. Um, the negative letters didn't mention us by name. They mentioned sort of those women or... You know, I don't understand why there isn't something more newsworthy. Why would you put those women on the front page? Isn't Helena better than that? So I was reading these letters and I would come into our bedroom in the mornings and say, so Nikki, there's another one. And finally she just cut me off and she was like, I, I don't need to know this. You know, they're having a good conversation, but I, I can't know what people are saying. A few weeks after the first article, the conversation intensified when one especially hateful voice rose above the rest. A man wrote sort of a Your Turn article. Um, his name is Tom Rasmussen, and he was a former state representative um, and sort of public figure. And he started in with the whole, you know, tearing at the fabric of society. People who think they're gay can find treatment and love through Jesus. This will make it so children will receive instruction in homosexual sex in their, like, kindergartens? 
which is incredibly perverse and also not true and says something to his state of mind. Important words like husband and wife will have no meaning, and in some ways the English language will begin to suffer, which was new. I, I had no idea as an English PhD student I was engaged in destroying the English language. I was really hurt by the time I got to the end of that. Um, it, was, it was at the point where I really wanted to remind them that I was more than something to just be argued about. I think the hardest thing for me in the experience was I'm an activist. I'm used to being part of the conversation. I'm used to, you know, when CI-96 was being argued in Montana, I wrote letters to the editor. I was in newspapers. I was fighting for this. But when Mr. Rasmussen began to sort of say those things, I did think, you know what? Enough. I want to write back. I want to respond. You know, I pulled out all of my favorite Bible quotations for fighting. Then I stopped myself. You know, I thought, you know, at this point it actually isn't it is about me, but not really anymore. This is a conversation that has transcended sort of happy gay story for a sad gay teenager um, and has become something that the straight people in Montana had to talk about. Um, it, it wasn't really about me anymore. Even though she was worried that Rasmussen might have the last word, Bridget didn't say anything and waited anxiously for the community to respond. And fortunately, it did. There were some sort of interesting letters responding to it, saying that ultimately gay marriage was kind of a, a phony issue, that if people like Mr. Rasmussen were so engaged in protecting families, why didn't they get rid of um, taverns, the lottery, gambling, things that put actual stress on families? If they were concerned about families, why didn't they support minimum wage, um, you know, children's health care, that kind of thing. It, it was good for someone else to have the last word, I think. But at a certain point, I really did want to say, it's not just me reading this. You're not just being mean to me. My mother is reading this. How can you say this about someone's child? A small ceremony that celebrated the intimate connection between two people had blown up into a much larger discussion for an entire community. The very personal had become hugely public. For Bridget and Nikki, it felt like everyone had forgotten there were real people affected by the public sentiment. In the larger debate, people seemed to say whatever they wanted. If the conversation could have stayed small and personal, maybe it would also have stayed civil and respectful. A terrible was made. This November, same-sex couples in California will again wait for a decision that could radically affect their lives. But this time, it's not the courts making the choice, it's the people. Proposition 8 proposes a constitutional amendment that will define marriages between a man and a woman. What this will do for couples already married, like Bridget and Nikki, no one really knows. But if passed, Prop 8 will eliminate the right to marry for same-sex couples. I, I think our marriage has become one of those symbols of, of something. I guess we're not sure what at this point. Know, either a symbol of, of progress, of equality, of, of you know, liberty and justice for all, or you know, a symbol of the first time that Americans have ever used the voting process to take away rights from a minority group. We would be a symbol of times changing, of equality, of what I believe the ideals that our nation has been founded on and has been reaching towards since our founding, or we would become one of those symbols of 
what happens when a majority can vote to take away the rights of a minority? Maybe today it's Proposition 8. How do we know that morality won't be attempted to be legislated in another way that will reach out and attack more people and hurt more people? Whatever the symbolic meaning of their marriage becomes, what won't change for Bridget and Nikki is the personal meaning of their commitment to each other. Nikki and I were married before June 19th. We will be married after November 4th. Um, you know, so marriage is a commitment to family. It's a commitment to community. It's a commitment to each other. Um, you can't, in legislation, take that away. Um, not from us, not from the people who kind of do the daily work of being together, um, cooking together, paying bills together, all of that. We just celebrated her 30th birthday, um, and I'm really looking forward to the next 30 years, and then maybe the 30 after that to see what will happen. That story was produced by storytelling fiction editor Lee Constantino with Charlie Mintz and myself. As of today, Bridget and Nikki are still legally married. But that could change five days from now when Californians vote on Prop 8. Today's program was produced by Claire Bennett, Micah Craddy, Charlie Mintz, Lee Constantino, and myself, Dan Hirsch. Also by our Deputy Director Bonnie Swift and Director Jonah Willingance. This show was engineered live by Charlie Mintz. Thanks to Bridget Weirdy, Jenna Reback, and other Obama phone bankers, and to Bob Smith for his continued technical support. The original music that you're hearing right now for this show was written and performed by Nimbleweed. Their campaign song for Obama can be found on YouTube. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank Stanford's Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West for their underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every Storytelling Project episode on Stanford iTunes and our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Next, tune in next week when we'll hear stories about fakes, phonies, imposters. And keep listening for the rest of our fabulous second season. We've got a great lineup. Politics is smallitics. Every vote counts. And if you haven't already turned in your ballot, don't forget to hit the polls on November 4th. So, for the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Dan Hirsch.